You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt. And not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent, and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, Enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces. NATION30, and you will receive 30% off your purchase. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode number 21. Uh, Today in the podcast, I am joined by Ethan Hollifield. Uh, Ethan is the head guide for 2% 
Certified Guide Service Southern Appalachian Anglers uh, out of Asheville, North Carolina. Um, it was uh, it was really cool to to speak to Ethan and get a better understanding, really, of how he became um, or how he got into the world of uh, of guide uh, of guiding. Um, they guide primarily for trout, uh, bass, and uh, muskie down there uh, in North Carolina. And really, he had Ethan had a fishing pole put in his hand when he was probably three years old by one of his uh, by his great grandfather, and really by the sounds of it, he never he never looked back. And you know, Ethan was very fortunate to to be raised around um, some people in his family that uh, had a really strong love and appreciation for the outdoors, and and really instilled that in him uh, at a young age. And this this mindset around conservation and how the, he should, you know, treat the outdoors and, you know, really what goes into kind of the ecosystem and, and how important it is, um, to everything and, you know, to make sure that he's giving back to that. Um, and then when he got into college, uh, you know, he spent some time doing, uh, fishing, uh, at a collegiate level, which I had heard of, um, prior to, to speaking to Ethan, but I, I didn't actually, uh, know anyone um, who had ever done anything like that before. So it was it was cool to talk about that. And and really, you can hear in, in Ethan's voice and when he when he's talking about it, that the teaching, um, not only, you know, whether it's fly fishing or just, um, you know, fishing with a spinning rod, uh, depending upon what they're fishing for, but the love that he has for teaching you know, potentially new anglers out on the water about, you know, not only fishing, but, you know, how important fish are to the ecosystem and just trying to instill his passion for conservation in the outdoors into his clients and the people that he takes fishing uh, was really, you know, really cool to hear about. And, you know, I think you guys are are, going to enjoy this episode. I mean, today was the first time that I've had a chance to really speak to Ethan and, you know, after five minutes of, of speaking to him, it felt like, you know, I've known the guy for years. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy um, this week's episode. Uh, before we get into it, I just want to let you guys know, head over to the Average Conservationist uh, website. Uh, I just launched um, some new hats a few weeks ago. Um, and this week, uh, a couple new sweatshirts and a new t-shirt as well. Uh, so definitely be sure to head over to the AverageConservationist.com and grab some new stuff and know that 10% of all purchases are going directly back to conservation. All right, with me on the podcast today, I have the head guide for 2% certified guide service Southern Appalachian Anglers, Ethan Hollifield. Ethan, how's everything going today, man? Hey, man, it's going good. How about you, buddy? Hey, it's going well. Thanks. I, uh, I appreciate you taking a little break from the river and hopping on the podcast today. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we kind of get too far into things here, I just want to take a quick second to say congratulations, man. I see you, uh, just recently got married a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, back around end of June, we kind of pushed it up to, thanks to COVID, but it ended up working out real well. We've been, we've been real blessed so far, so I can't really complain. Well, good, man. That's good. I wish, uh, you and your bride, nothing but happiness in the future. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So. <clears throat> kind of first things first, uh, Ethan, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, the guide service? 
Sure, yeah. So we are based out of Asheville, North Carolina, in the western part of the state. Um, we specialize in targeting the three main species of game fish that we have here in our river system. So primarily trout, that's that's what everyone knows mountains for, is for trout. But we also have some of the best smallmouth and musky fishing in the southeast. Um, we do fly fishing for all three species. We also do conventional fishing as well um, for anyone who's kind of interested in that. And, and we take people out of all skill levels. I mean, I've taken people who've never held a fishing rod before in their hand. I've taken people who've been doing this for 30 years from, from all over the world. Um, and, and, you know, for us, we, we're, we're blessed to have this opportunity. We're blessed to be able to guide and, and to fish up here in such a beautiful part of the country. Um, and in addition to, to teaching people, you know, how to fish and how to catch fish, we also try to instill a, a conservation ethic in people as well. Um, which I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit more later as we talk on throughout the day. But we also try to, you know, teach people why it's important to protect the places around here um, because we only have so much mountain land here and we got to do our part to protect it as much as we try to enjoy it for ourselves. So that's kind of that's kind of what we do and who we are. And um, all the guides are, are local people who have lived here for a long time and know all the water like the back of their hand. So... Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good thing for a guide or for, for someone like me who would be coming down and, and booking a trip with you guys to know, you know, to have the confidence in you guys that, you know, like you said, you know, the water, like the back of your hand. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, you, you kind of take for granted, but then I've also, you know, heard or, or seen different outfits where, you know, they, they don't quite know it as well as you hope they would. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could write a whole novel, on some of the issues in the guiding industry when it comes to that that little topic but we'll we'll save that spill for another time i reckon (laughs) (laughs) so now being the the head guide um for saa how many other guides do you guys have uh in your outfit so paul the owner um he's a head honcho of the whole operation um i've been guiding with him now for going on almost six years now at this point um his wife, Casey, does some, some charity stuff with the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, my buddy, Matt, who is on the um, USA Youth USA fly fishing team, um, also guides with us. And my buddy, Mitchell, who's up from my neck of the woods here, he, he's our newest member. He just joined on back this spring, and um, he's, been, he's been lots out this past year. Couldn't be more proud of him for stepping up and uh, – We've been doing real well considering how tough this summer's been with everything going on. So it's us five primary, or excuse me, us, uh, me, Paul, Case, and Matt Mitchell. Yeah, us five now. And um, it's, that's, that's it pretty much. I mean, we, we kind of like to keep it a small operation like that. It's more intimate. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, when you, when you get to, to a bigger scale, you know, you, you kind of get to where you aren't, you don't know the other people that well. And, and I, I kind of like, you know, having a good group of buds that I can guide with because yeah. we we're, we make a really good team. Um, we all text each other a night before trips, and you know, if we're going on the same stretch of water, we'll kind of divide it up. Like, you know, I'm I'm going to take this spot. Feel free to take up above me if you need it, and we okay. kind of coordinate stuff from there. And you know, having kind of a smaller operation like that allows us to be a lot more flexible with stuff. And um, all in all, it's just it's just a great thing to be a part of. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, it's almost, it's 
the way I kind of look at uh, a guide service, especially one that that's smaller that has a tight tight knit group of guys, is it's almost like just a a bunch of fishing buddies, right? That are getting paid to you know, fortunately getting paid to to take other guys out and enjoy the water. Absolutely, yeah. That's the that's the fun part of it too. Is that when we when we do get days off, we we try to get together and and you know go fish and do stuff like that, or at least you know I'll go to the shop and re rig stuff and. Um, you know that that little camaraderie part of it's the yeah. best part of it too that's 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 what makes it yeah yeah i i, I couldn't agree more so how was it that the outdoors and, and everything like that was kind of introduced to you or you know when did you get started uh you know fishing Ooh, that's a good question um <laughs> so that that goes back to to my family really and i think there's a lot of people who can relate to that you know everyone's got a dad or a granddad that took them out fishing or you know, whatever. And, um, I have to give credit to first my uncle, cause he's the one who bought me my lifetime fishing license when I was a baby. So I gotta, I gotta give him some credit for that. Um, my father who, while he's not really an outdoorsman in the sense of a hunter or fisherman, he was a history teacher his entire life. And you know, the way I explain it to people here, like in terms of like our mountain culture, there's a lot of history that goes back here because this is one of the first regions that was settled um 300 years ago and i mean there's houses here that have been here since the 1700s you know so he he kind of instilled in me you know how the environment here is related to the culture and the culture related to the environment it's a a vice versa relationship there and he would take me what we call loafing down here it's where you just get in the car and just drive around to wherever um, he'd take me to all these cool spots that he knew of, you know, and it might be down like in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's a lot of, a lot of my family's from down there. Okay. And so I've got a lot of history down there and he would take me to, um, some of these places down there that just so happened to have some good trout fishing in them too. So, you know, I would, he would show me all these old historical sites and then I'd go out and fish. Um, but my, my grand, both my grandfathers were a big part in that as well because, you know, when I was getting a little older, they would take me out and we'd go fishing on weekends. And my, my great grandfather, especially, um, he was a big outdoorsman and the biggest fisherman in our family. And he taught me pretty much everything that I knew um, up until he died until when I was 16. Um, but I caught my first trout with him, and my great grandmother, when I was around three years old. Okay. That's about how long I've been fishing. Uh, I started fly fishing when I was around maybe, I don't know, I guess 10 or 11 years old. Okay. Um, and then I got into the bass fishing scene when I was in college. I, I joined a, a collegiate, well, I went to NC State and I joined the collegiate bass fishing team. And so I fished tournaments all around the middle part of the state. Um, learned a lot about bass fishing and conventional fishing from that. And that's what kind of brought me into that world as well. Cause I'm not necessarily a fly fishing purist by any means. Um, I, the way I look at it is that, especially as a guide, there's, there are times where spin fishing can be a lot more advantageous than fly fishing, especially if you're targeting species like smallmouth and, and musky. Um, fly fishing is the most effective way to catch trout. So that's why I do it for trout most of the time. Right. But you know, that, I got to give, you know, my, my grandfather, my dad, my uncle and my great granddad, especially for, for instilling that outdoor, the love of the outdoors in, in general for me. Um, if it weren't for them, I'd, I don't know what I'd be into now, to be honest. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, I I find that that uh, that's the case with a lot of a lot of people who are are introduced to it at a young age. It's it's usually by a dad or a grand a grandpa or, or something like that, and that they just have they have a way of kind of giving you an appreciation for it that you might not get at an older age because it's you know I'm, <clears throat> I'm speaking a little bit from experience here, but you know when I was introduced to the outdoors, same same type of way, right with with relatives right. and, and things like that. But as you get older and, you know, grandpas and, and things like that pass away, it kind of gives you this nostalgic feeling every time you're out on the water or you're out in the woods that it, it kind of takes you back to, you know, a much simpler time, so to speak, when when you really got to enjoy those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I was uh, going back through some of our emails this morning. We were corresponding <clears throat> before we jumped on here and uh, in your email, uh, like in your signature portion there, it says professional yeah, professional fly fisherman. So how is it that you become, or like a, what does it take to become a professional fly fisherman? Because, you know, I don't know that there's anything that I do aside from maybe being a pain in the ass to my wife, what I could be considered a professional at. Right. I, I understand. I understand that. Um, you know, to me, what makes someone a professional in, in anything, it doesn't have to be fishing. It's with any type of subject matter. Um, a lot of it just comes from experience. I mean, to be, for me anyway, to be considered a guide, you'd have to be doing this for years. Right. Because there's a lot of little, I mean, fly fishing, bass fishing, whatever type of fishing you're doing, hunting is the same thing. Um, there's little nuances to stuff that can can make or break your day. Um, with the fly fishing part, especially, you know, having that experience fishing, but also I think understanding the environment that you're in very intimately is what makes you professional as well. Um, you know, for fly fishing, you talk about like hatches of bugs, um, where you're going to find trout versus smallmouth in a river system, um, how to target those fish at different points of the year based on what they're doing in their environment. All those little nuances can make or break you. Um, I think understanding those intimate relationships between the, the fish and their environment, that's what makes you professional. Yeah. And having experience to know how to catch them, even when it's the the worst possible conditions. Yeah. Because uh, I can't tell you how many times, and I think any other guide who's been been doing this will tell you the same thing, that you, you get to a spot and something happens that throws your game plan a complete curveball. You know, so you got plan A, then you got plan B and C and D. There's been a lot of times I've had to go to plan D and had to make it work, you know. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you get to a spot, and especially up here, some places are still pretty remote, and, you know, there's no, like, USGS gauges or anything like that. So um, it's based off of experience, whether I know whether the water's going to be flooded out and muddy or whether it's going to be fishable if we get a lot of rain or something like that. Right. You know, just nuances like that are what I think make you – make you what you would call a professional okay yeah and i would uh i would assume that yeah that's as you get further into your career of of being a guide that you kind of become one with your environment right it's like you talked about you know knowing the hatches you know the river system what could you know affect a certain hatch or you know knowing that because you got a big rainstorm the night before something like that the water's going to be all muddied out and washed out or you know, a light rain, it's causing a hatch or, you know, whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now was, was becoming a guide something that you 
had kind of always wanted to do like since you really got into fishing or is it something that you kind of you know with with being on the um the fishing team when you were in school like is that the kind of the point where you said you know what i i think i could make a career out of this you know it's something i really enjoy doing yeah so there's a lot of answers to that question um for, for me, anyway, it, it came from my love of being in the outdoors in the first place. I mean, I got the best office in the world, um, you know, regardless of what type of conditions it is. I always have to remind myself, even on the days where you have the crappiest weather, it's it's still a lot better than sitting in a concrete jungle somewhere. Absolutely. Um, I've done stuff like that before, too. Um, you know, and for me, too, I've, especially over the last couple of years or so, and especially since joining 2%, um, you know, I think one of the responsibilities that you have as a guide, like I said earlier, is, is trying to instill a conservation ethic in people. Um, because that's, that's one point that if I can go off on down a rabbit hole, yeah, absolutely. For a um, that's one point I think it's almost, that's almost missed in the guiding world anymore. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, cause fly fishing, um, and everyone, everyone that does this kind of has this one singular cause with the movie River Runs Through It coming out as being the reason why there's so many people into fly fishing. That and social media, too. Um, social media has influenced a lot of it as well. Um, it's just exploded in the last 10 years. And there's an essence, you know, the, the main goal when you go out is to catch fish, obviously. I mean, that's what kind of everybody wants to do. Right. There's the the part where you know understanding how fragile these ecosystems are that's a point that i think doesn't get addressed across very well sometimes so uh, what i and the rest of us at saa try to focus on is you know fish catch is part of it but it's also to try and teach people why fish are there in the first place like why we're going here instead of here um just like I said, those little nuances to the environment that take a really intimate understanding of knowing um, that that's a, and again, just how fragile these places are and why they're worth protecting. Those things are sometimes I think missed in a lot of the guided community because everyone gets so focused on putting people on putting people on fish, which again is, a, is an important part of it because people are paying you sometimes a lot of money to go out and catch fish, right? Right. So right. One, that obviously just out of respect for your clients and the time um but again what i also try to do is is to try to teach people why it's important to protect them so we spend a lot of time like when the first person or when a person catches their their first trout might be the first trout they've ever had seen in their entire life um you know we get it in the net and i take 30 seconds just to show them, you know, I'm going to break this down and show you how to release this fish properly without killing it, right. how, to, how to hold the fish, you know, how to do it where it's not going to harm the fish and you can release it. And and that comes back to with, you know, my job is that if I killed every fish that I caught, I'd be have a job really quick. And, you know, I, I, I got to give my parents some credit for this too, because both my parents were teachers. A lot of my family was in the, the education system for a long time. And I've, I think I kind of had that, love of teaching in a way sure um there's i do and generally enjoy teaching people that stuff so that, that's part of it and that's one of the reasons why i became a guide in the first place and and you know the where we're at here in the southern appalachians is 
you know, the way I describe it to people, it's one of the world's most diverse ecosystems with the least amount of protected land. So, like, if you look at a map of all the protected land areas, whether it's, like, National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, whatever, if you look at a map of the United States that shows all those lands, like, out west, they're, they're blessed out there. You know, yeah. they've got tons and tons of land. And you look at North Carolina or East Tennessee or anywhere in the southeastern Appalachians, there's hardly any. I mean, you could fit all of West North Carolina and half of Yellowstone, you know. So, oh, wow. We, you know, we've got very little in terms of, like, protected land, and that's that's all we've got. And, you know, I do got on other places that aren't necessarily on protected land that are public access, but those places are starting to get to the point where they're getting detrimented very quickly. Okay. A lot of that has population increases, people moving in, a lot of developments taking place. Um, I could write a whole novel on, on that in and of itself. But, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I love my job so much because it gives me an opportunity to, again, show people why this, where I grew up, my home is worth, is worth protecting. Yeah. That's, that's about to boil it down to one answer. That's, that's the main reason why I enjoy guiding so much is, is just for that. I see it as a way to, in some ways, to try, one way to try to protect my home. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good answer. And that's one that, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in terms of, you know, why they kind of got into their specific um, profession and, and whether it's the outdoors or, or what have you, you know, with with the different two percent companies that uh, that I've spoken to. And that's that's kind of the first time that I've gotten that answer where that you wanted to help protect what you have and, and educate the others that are, are coming on and using, um, you know, the river systems and, and things like that, that you guys are fishing. So that's, no, that's, that's a great reason to, to want to become a guide and to want to make a, a career out of, out of guiding. Mm-hmm. So I, I gotta know, you, you said you started fly fishing when you were nine or 10 years old. Do you enjoy uh, bow hunting as well? So I was never really, Growing up, I was never really much of a bow hunter. Um, I grew up hunting. I mean, that's kind of what you did growing up around here. You, you hunted or fished or did something like that. Yeah. Uh, I mainly, if I went hunting, it was either with a rifle or a shotgun. Um, I'll, I'll confess, I've never shot a muzzleloader. I've never killed anything with a bow. I would like to do that stuff eventually. Yeah. Uh, but I spent so much time, so much time fishing that I, those things just kind of went to the wayside. I had too many hobbies at one point. Um, but I could see because I have shot bows before I, I grew up shooting a long bow that my granddaddy gave me, um, just kind of target practice out in the backyard for yeah. fun. And I, I can see how it relates to fly fishing in a lot of different ways. Um, well, that, that, that was kind of what I was <clears throat> leading up to there was what I find is a lot of people who, who fly fish or like to fly fish, like to bow hunt too. And, you know, they're not mutually exclusive activities, but there's a lot of, you know, nuance into bow hunting and it's, it takes a lot more practice, you know, shooting with a bow and just like, you know, casting a fly rod, right? Like it, it, it takes a lot of practice to become proficient at it. Right. And how you're, you know, presenting the fly and, and where it's at in the river and, you know, not getting any drag or, you know, anything like that. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I can see where bow hunting would be kind of the same thing as well. Um, Cause I'd, from my limited experience shooting a bow, it's a lot different than shooting a rifle. Yeah. Uh, and because I grew up shooting that long bow, I had no sight on her or anything. And if I wanted to try to hit the middle of the target anywhere, I'd, 
you know, pulling back and drawing on it. Cause this is, I mean, it was a long bow, one a compound bow and it was about an 80 pound draw. And here's little 13 year old me, scrawny kid trying to pull back on that bow. <laughs> and, um, you know, I kind of had to learn how to, you know, build up that arm strength and that muscle memory. And, and that's, yeah. I think that's the key of it. Just like with fly fishing is building that muscle memory. Um, and you know, like going back to what you said with casting, um, what I tell people to do is when I'm teaching them how to throw a fly rod and aside from like the basic 10 and two motion and all that, I, I tell them to get really good at it. Don't focus, get to the point where you don't focus so much on what your hand's doing. And if you're looking at a spot on the river to put that fly, look at that spot and get your arm to where, or get your arm to make that motion where the fly goes out where it needs to be. And it's kind of the same thing with bow hunting too, to a certain yeah. degree. I imagine it would be, um, yeah, I, I can definitely see how those two things kind of interrelate to one another. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I love fly fishing. I, I don't want to say I grew up doing it, but I, I fly fished a lot as, uh, <clears throat> as you know, a teenager with my dad and then kind of got out of it once I got into college and it just didn't have a lot of time and then picked it back up again, I don't know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago or so. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's one of my favorite things to do. I'm not great at it by any means and don't claim to be, but... I, I enjoy, you know, every, every time because each cast is a little bit different. You know, you find a different pocket of water or something like that. And you just, you never know what's, what's below the surface there. Exactly. Yep. So exactly. what is your, uh, your rod of choice, um, as far as brand goes? Cause I, I would imagine that y- you're pretty particular to one or the other. Yeah. So for me anyway, um, and here's a little backstory on on me too, I guess. Um, I grew up fly. I mean, I I didn't grow up poor compared to a lot of other people around here, but we didn't have a lot of money, and I had to work pretty much everything that I had. And at one point in time, I was fishing with a Frankenstein rod that was like an eight weight at the butt section, duct taped with a middle piece that was a five weight and then a three weight tip. <laughs> um, I mean, my great granddaddy fished with a like an eagle claw fly rod with a zebco 33 attached to the butt end of it because that's all he had you know? right and that's he was successful with it um it, you know for me i kind of have that the value aspect of it i think getting the most for your, out of your money sure. um because i mean you can buy a thousand dollar fly rod like you know the orvis helios is a great rod do you need a thousand dollar fly rod to catch fish with nope you don't no um i i look at you know, in the bass fishing world, it's different because um, the bass fishing or conventional fishing, the way the rods build affects its sensitivity. And so with fly fishing, since you're not worried about rod sensitivity so much, unless you're doing something like maybe European style nymphing or something like that, that's a little bit different. Yeah. It's kind of a niche. It's kind of a specific niche in the fly fishing world. But, sure. you know, to answer your question, I would say any rod in like the two to $300 range is fine. Yeah. Um, if I had to like one type of rod to fish with around here it would be a fast action nine foot four weight okay uh, and the reason why is because and for some reason this has been like a misconception that's that's been around for forever around here is when you get up on the small mountain creeks you need like a seven foot six foot fly rod and to me that's like the worst rod you could ever have because you can't physically reach out for a spot because when you're you know the biggest difference between fishing around here and then fishing somewhere like Colorado or Montana is that around here we've got 
laurel and roto thickets and trees everywhere. Right. So you drop a cast, you're up in a tree almost immediately. So a lot of what I grew up doing was is similar to what they do over in Ireland and Scotland on some of the locks out there. It's called dapping. It's where they take like a 13 foot long rod and they they have like a, a legit live mayfly on a hook and they just go out and they just dap it on the water. Okay. And that's kind of what I grew up fishing with doing as well. Um, taking a, a long rod. I've, I've even used 10 foot rods in some really small creeks up here and just kind of following that same principle. And it's got some advantages to it because when that fly is by itself on the water, you have no drag. You have no line on the water whatsoever, so there's no way you can get any drag. And you get a completely perfect drift doing that most of the time. Yeah. Um, and that's why a nine-foot rod is so advantageous, even on some smaller creeks. Four-weight, the reason why I say that is because a four-weight, you can, you know, people, when they get when they first get started, they generally get a nine-foot five-weight, and that's fine. But when you're going after a stream that's got primarily – you know, seven, eight inch long trout in it at the biggest, that nine foot five weight's gonna feel like a broomstick. Yeah. So a four weight gives you a little bit more play, helps you enjoy fighting that fish a little bit more, but you're using a lot of line, so you know, most of the time I'm using six or seven X tippet, so yeah. real lot of stuff. And a four weight gives you the ability to fish with that stuff without just breaking off all the time. And you know, with a with a fast action nine foot four way, you can throw nymph rigs on it, you can throw small streamers on it depending on the rod. Yep. Uh, Reddington came out with their vice model and that rod's really impressed me in terms of like what it's capable of doing. Yeah. Um take a nine foot four way vice, go fish for wild fish, and then I can go on a bigger river that's maybe got stockers in it or something and throw double nymph rigs all day on it and it works fine. Um, so I guess I'm not necessarily brand specific, but I'm just going off my guiding experience here. What I tell like a client that's looking to get their first rod, um, that's, that's the direction I kind of point them in. Yeah. And yeah, that, uh, so that's for, I mean, I'm in Michigan here and we've got some, mm-hmm. some pretty good trout streams here in Michigan, but that's, I mean, I use an eight and a half foot four weight almost ex- exclusively, right. Unless, unless you're going to get into like the hex which is, you know, it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's fishing at nighttime, you know, you're throwing those big bugs and, you know, probably a, a six weight and it's a lot yep. bigger water as well, but a four weight around here, will you can fish pretty much anything, um, you know, that you want to. And like you said, you can throw a small streamer, small nymph rig, you know, it'll handle just about any dry that you want to tie on the end of it. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great size rod. And yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would agree with, uh, with your assessment there. Mm-hmm. absolutely so how tough was it to to kind of get into the guiding industry and, and to get to where you're at now yeah that that's a good question um you know i i consider myself pretty lucky because at at an early age um in the little town i grew up in there was a fly shop that opened up there for a while and I, I remember, and if any of these guys are listening, I apologize in advance for how much I bugged you back then. <laughs> so I go and absolutely hound these guys, um, just because I was, you know, even back then when I was younger as a teenager, I thought it was just the coolest job in the world. Sure. Like I thought that was the coolest thing, just to be able to take people fishing and earn a living off of it. That was like that just blew my mind. You could do that. Uh, and that and that fly shop is is long gone, unfortunately, since then. But. Um, that kind of got me. It's just like any, any type of business, you know, networking is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And so the more we know in that industry, 
the more chances you have of being successful in it, just off of people what you know, you know. Um, and back then, like I said, things have changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's exploded. Even 10 years ago, the we were getting a lot of people up here that were fly fishing, but there was relatively few guides. Okay. And so I got to know those people. And I made some connections through that. Um, and when I went to college, I was I was still in touch with them, and I would, you know, come back on the weekends, maybe help run the shop for half a day or something while someone else took a trip or something like that. Um, and that kind of got me experience in knowing like how things worked in a fly shop. Now we don't, SAA is not, we don't have a physical location. We just run a guide service. Um, but I met, I met Paul actually from happenstance. Um, he, he knew of me, uh, through social media, which is, I guess I can credit that as well. Social media, you can get a lot of reach through social media. Yeah. And he, we kind of met through that. Um, and, and kind of made a connection through that because I guess he could saw that I could fish a little bit and, um, he offered me a job and I took it right off the, right off the hitch there. So, um, but you know, it was a combination of a lot of different things. The other thing I credit too, as far as my guiding, you know, as far as getting any experience too, is I did a lot of volunteer stuff. So, um, I, I volunteered with project healing waters for a long time. Um, when I was in college, I would take my fall break and go to Cherokee, North Carolina, where they had a big, um, charity event for the people in project healing waters and i took a lot of those vets out and that was really some of my actual first guiding experience was doing that and i was you know i was taking people out who weren't sometimes physically disabled but you know they had things like ptsd and stuff like that and part of guiding to me is you kind of learn how to work around people's personalities as much as anything yeah because he's learns a little bit differently everyone's got their own handicaps regardless of whether you know someone project healing waters or it's you know some joe off the street everyone learns a little bit differently and they've got different expectations and um even sometimes different physical handicaps and it's up to you to work around that and try to get them on as many fish as you can so i credit that a lot with um building up experience for me which like I said, it was a culmination of a lot of different things. I, I'd say I got kind of a lucky break compared sure. to most people um, because of those connections that I made. So it wasn't as hard for me as I know it has been for other people. Um, and I, I consider myself very fortunate and very blessed because of that. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when, when people kind of say they're, you know, like they got lucky, like, you know, they're, they're, they're fortunate, they put in a lot of work on the front end of things like, you know, you did the networking, you were volunteering your time, like, you, you know, you were spending a lot of time just on the water and that, you know, in the end that pays off for you. And I think that that's, you know, and not to say that people who haven't necessarily caught a break yet aren't, aren't doing the work, but I think the people that, that do kind of catch the break, like they've, they've done a lot of legwork. They're not just, you know, winning the lotto, so to speak, right. They're not just getting lucky because they got lucky. Right. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, one of the things you had, had touched on earlier with teaching and you just kind of touched on it again there with, you know, every person learns a little bit differently, especially like if, when you talk about fly fishing, I mean, it can be, um, very frustrating for your first time out. Right. Because I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to cast a fly rod if you've never done it before. And kind of a, a personal story. I had, uh, taken a trip out to Colorado. This is probably uh, six years ago or so. Um, 
my wife set it up for me and I brought um, my brother-in-law and another buddy of mine who had never fly fish before. And we set up uh, to fish a couple days with a guide just because we figured we've only got three days and we want to make the most of it and they'd never fished before. So got a guide and, you know, we, I told them from the get go, I'm like, I fished before, but my two buddies, they have not, they've not fly fished. And I mean, I can't even count the amount of times they got snagged, broke off a fly. And he just, he was just like, yep, no problem. Give me your rod. Give me your line. Yep. No problem. I mean, the, the, the patience that anyone in the guiding industry has is it is very commendable because it's not something that that's easy. I mean, if it were me trying to take people out sometimes you know, after breaking off a line or not doing what I'm telling them to, or asking them to do three or four times, it'd be like, I I'd throw my hands up in the air and be like, have at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I get what you mean. Um, patience, patience is a big part of it as well. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, and at least in my experience, the, the easiest people to teach are the ones that have never done it before. No because, bad habits. No, exactly. No bad habits. And, and, you know, you get, you know, when you talk to people on the phone and, you know, you're trying to get a game plan going the day before, before the trip, the first words usually come out of their mouth um, are, I've never done this before. And I'm like, perfect. It means you, know, you, you ain't got no bad habits. It's yep. good. Yeah. Um, much easier to teach. It's, it's much harder to take someone who's been doing it wrong for 20 years. Yeah. And, trying to show them how to do it the right way and of course it's all relative too you know i mean um people come from from well this is a good example so you know tailwaters spring creeks up in like pennsylvania uh even some places out west the hatches matter a lot so your fly pattern matters a bunch Mm -hmm. around here it's it's actually kind of the opposite um your fly pattern doesn't really matter that much because we just don't get the the huge bug populations like like some other places do so some people are used to fishing a certain way just based off that okay and when i talk to people it throws them for a curveball because and this is one of the misconceptions that i think a lot of people have with fly fishing is that their fly pattern is the most important part and it's really not um it all comes down to presentation presentation yeah. over fly pattern any day because i can hand you the most well-tied fly in the world don't mean anything if you can't fish it right and the, the fish around here, whether it's, whether it's smallmouth, musky, trout, whatever, um, and this is how I explain it to my clients, is that, you know, we're the closest water to millions of people. So Atlanta, Knoxville, Raleigh, Charlotte, um, you know, we're the closest trout water to any of those places. Okay. And so they just get educated real quick. Yeah. And so, it, it, again, it's not so much the fly pattern. It's just knowing how to fish it right. And that yeah. can make a difference between catching – one fish and catch a 20 fish sometimes yeah and i've heard the guide that um that we fished with and i've actually fished with him a few times one because he's just he was just such a cool dude that i just enjoyed you know spending the day with him but uh he said uh women are actually much better they learn much better because they actually listen to what you say and where like like the first time when we went out when i went out there with my buddies we uh, th- there was a bunch of runoff, so the water was super muddy. So we were nymphing, and uh, you know he's saying he's trying to explain to us. You know, anytime you see you know your indicator even make a funny move or anything like that, he's like set the hook. He's like I promise you. He's like there's fish there. He's like if it's not floating true through the through you know through the run, it, something's hitting your fly. And he's like you know guys get like embarrassed if they're setting the hook 
or something like that, you know, and there's nothing there and they, you know, they feel like they look like an idiot. Whereas, you know, women, they're like, okay, if that's you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And they catch way more fish, you know, especially right out the gate doing something like that. Absolutely. I like kids to that as well. Um, kids with a certain age range of around like eight to, to like 13, 14 years old, they're sponges. So yeah. they absorb, they absorb everything that you tell them if they're interested in it. Yeah. Um, if they've got that interest in it and they generally want to learn how to do it, man, their, their lot's out most of the time. Yeah. Uh, I've had some really incredible, like even seven-year-olds that just blew my mind in terms of like how much information they absorbed and how good they did because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's gotta be a, a cool experience, you know, with, you know, getting a kid out there that young with his dad or his mom or, you know, whatever the case is. And he's just, you know, hammering fish all day long. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's always the best part of it for me. You know, um, when I get kids, I try to focus most of my attention on them because that's yeah. something they're going to remember potentially for the rest of their life. And um, for a lot of kids, it might be the only experience they ever get doing that too. You just never know. So um, that's that's another part of the job that I love too is, is getting to take a kid out and watch them get real excited on on catching their first trout. And sure. you know, there's been plenty of times where I just step back and just told them where to cast and then let them have at it. Yeah, and it's really cool watching that. Yeah. It's that's one of the best parts of the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Now, you talked about it earlier and, you know, again, one of the reasons that you like guiding so much, you know, and, and what you try to instill in a lot of your clients is the the conservation ethic that goes along with it. Now, SAA, you know, you guys are 2% certified. So how was it that you guys kind of came to be certified or, you know, what did that process look like from learning about 2% for conservation and then, you know, getting SAA certified. So there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, like going down another rabbit hole here for a second, um, you know, where we're at in, in the Southern Appalachians, like, like I said earlier, it's, it's got some beautiful land. There's, there's still a lot of what I would consider wilderness up here. Um, but there's, there's not much of it left. Yeah. And it, it seems like for, and this is for a lot of different reasons, um, places that I knew of growing up that never got touched are suddenly getting a lot more pressure. And with that pressure comes a lot of people who are, who are ignorant to conservation ethic or, or really just how the environment, environment works in general. And I'm sure it's, it's similar in like places in Michigan and places out West, um, you know, there, there's people that uh, unfortunately see, you know, a natural area as kind of like their own personal playground in a way. Right. You know, they can just do whatever they want to, and it's not going to matter. And and that just comes from ignorance, I think, just from those people not not being and growing up in that type of environment. Right. But you know, one of the things that that we focused on a lot, just because we run into this a lot, is just the amount of trash trash that's present. Yeah. Um, like there's there's an insane insane amount and i can go into like the the chemistry behind why something like plastic is bad for the aquatic environment but you know just the fact that there's a huge volume of it out there is is insane and um i i got on with two percent for that reason and then everyone else kind of followed suit just with like you know something's gotta be done to combat it and if we're and if we're guiding on this stuff and we're, we're using this resource we we've got to do our part to take care of it and, and give back to it and there's more that we can do other than you know because teaching people you know how to release a trout the right way how 
you know, how the environment works, you know, why everything's so fragile, that's great and that's good. But those people go back home to wherever they're from after the trip. Right. And, and we're still here. And so we can make more of an impact on it because of that. I mean, we, we already are. I think one of the things that you have to acknowledge as a guide is that you're putting pressure, a lot of pressure in some cases on a resource. And you have to kind of discern whether the amount of pressure that you're putting on is too much mm-hmm. in some ways, um, just from exposure. But one of the best, and I tell people this too, is one of the best ways you can, you know, if you wanted to get into some type of conservation work is just simply just pick up trash. And it doesn't have to be yeah. extravagant. I mean, I, I was going through last year and going, and I set a personal goal for myself to, to go out once a week and pick up at least one 33-gallon bags worth of trash out of somewhere that I guided. And it was partly because I, I wanted to give back. And part of it, too, was just to see how much was actually out there. Because once, you know, I have all that data logged, and once I started doing it, I started seeing how much was actually out there. So it turned into, well, why stop at one bag? Let's see how many we can get. Right. And it ended up being four bags, five bags some days, not count like how many individual pieces of plastic I was picking up, what types of chemical products I was finding. Um, and is it, it was unreal. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that, like in terms of like why I'm seeing so much. A lot of it comes from pressure, um, but a lot of it comes from just, just people's ignorance. There's still people who think you can just take your household trash and just dump it off the side of the road and it's yeah. not going to matter. You know, and I think it's, you know, it's not, you know, you hear the argument like tourist ruin and everything. Well, there, there's bad people everywhere. Yeah. You know, there's people that don't have that mindset. So that's that's kind of why we, we got into it, because like I said earlier, we all kind of have that same mentality. Like we want to we want to do something to try to give back to the place that's, you know, we're one, we're making our living off of. But two, we all grew up here. So. It, it doesn't really seem right for us to be exploring that resource without doing something to, to give back to it, you know? Yeah. And so that, that's kind of why we, we jumped on board with it because, you know, some, someone's got to do it. And going down another rabbit hole here, you know, I, I learned this in an economics class of all things in college. There's a little, there's a funny little business law called prices law. And for some reason this stuck with me ever since college. And the gist of it, without getting into the math and all that, is the square root of your population is going to do 50% of the work. And that can be in like a workplace environment um, or, or just about with anything. You know, you can relate that towards. So if you've got, you know, a certain amount of people going to like a natural environment, you know, if you apply that prices law to like whether they're going to behave in a manner that's in the best interest of the environment, those numbers are pretty dismal. Yeah, you know, so and the more people that you have, the more exposure you get, the more limited amount of people you have that actually, I hate to say care, but are, are just aware of the damage they could have. Um, which again, that goes back to just education. I think more than anything. Yeah, because uh, the I'll I'll tell you the the number one place I found the most trash was where there was a no dumping sign. Wherever <laughs> there was a no dumping sign, I that was where there was the most trash possible. Um, which tells you how good signs do and that yeah. you've got to have that conservation ethic instilled within you to, to follow through with it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about, you know, guiding services particular that are 2% certified is 
you know, what you're doing in, you know, inherently is taking away from the land. You know, I know that, you know, especially with trout and, you know, it, it primarily it's catch and release. And, it, and that may be the same with, with bass and with muskie and, and things like that. But you're, you know, even if, you know, 99% of the fish survive after you release them, you know, there's still that 1% that just for whatever reason, they're hooked bad, you know, whatever it is, right. They just, they don't survive, but mm-hmm. you know, you guys are taking away in essence with what you do, but then you're turning around and giving right back to it and doing all that you can to, to maintain, you know, the waterways and the ecosystem and stuff like that. I mean, I had a gentleman on, um, early on in the podcast who he guides bow fishing, um, out in like, uh, in New York and Pennsylvania. And, you know, he's, he said the biggest thing for him, he's like, you know, I'm doing all this on public water. He's like, it's the least I can do to, to give back to it. Right. You know, it's a, it's a public resource and the same with the waterways, you know, there in North Carolina that, you know, anyone can go out there and fish this water. So it's up to you guys who are, you know, making a living doing that to, to make sure that it's, it's great for not only you and your clients, but for other people who want to come through and, and fish that water as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'll, you always hear in, in, in the conservation world, like you want to make it better for your kids and your grandkids yep. and, you know, when, when that time comes down the road, when me and my wife decide, of a, decide to have a little young and I, I want them to be able to experience the same things I did growing up, you know? Yeah. And, and that, that's yeah. one thing that I talk, I, I talk about that with a lot of, a lot of my guests that have, you know, young kids as well too. It's, and you know, even if they had the, the kind of the, the conservation ethic instilled into them at some point, once you have kids, it like, it, it almost like it ratchets it up, ratchets up. A little bit more because now you're like okay now i really have something that i want to you know protect and, and pass on to my kids and, and everything like that so yeah to to be that passionate about it you know even before something like that is is great mm-hmm. absolutely man. absolutely so now what are some of the organizations that uh, saa is giving back to or you know donating their time or money to so we we all are members of, of trout unlimited to some degree um we give back a lot to french broad riverkeeper Asheville greenworks because where where we primarily got at is within the french broad river system okay uh, which that encompasses like a third of the water in western north carolina um and, and the french broad's a cool river system it's the third oldest river in the world um it's got everything from trout smallmouth to, to muskie and walleye and even caught freshwater drum and i recently found out they reintroduced atlantic sturgeon in there which is kind of cool i yeah. don't know what i'd look into one of those but uh, <laughs> i have a 15 foot drift boat i don't know if i could win that fight um you know but you know that those organizations do a lot of good for our for our watershed and I, i've worked with french Wild riverkeeper before in the past um they do a lot in terms of like water quality monitoring um erosion control which that's a big issue around here um, is the amount of just runoff that we get into our waterways is polluting right. water. We do a lot to help combat that. So we we've been trying more and more, especially in the last couple of years, to do things to to give back to those organizations as well because they they play a part in the same things that we're we're trying to do as well. You know, since we're since we're guiding and they're a conservation group, that's we're we're all sharing the same resource. Yeah. So we're trying to collaborate with them. You know, to try and, and try and make it better for all of us. Yeah. And that's one thing that I like too is, and it, especially for like me personally, like the more I've gotten kind of into the world of conservation, the more I like giving back or, or donating my time and money like locally. Right. I mean, that's where I'm spending, 
you know, a majority of my time recreating, right? So that's, those are the people that I want to make sure that I'm supporting and making sure that everything, you know, local is, is taken care of. I mean, you know, to, to be part of, you know, like Trout Unlimited, which is obviously a national organization and, you know, even like backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, these, these organizations that are, you know, you know, all across the country or, you know, North America, you know, whatever the case is, I mean, those are, those are great. And, they, they definitely serve their purpose. But yeah, there's something about being able to give back at a local level that just feels a little bit different. Right. And, I, and you know, for me personally, too, it's, um, I mean, you can find different issues all over the world, regardless of where you go to. And it, and it can get kind of overwhelming, too. I know that 2% recently has been putting a lot of stuff up out on, like, volunteer burnout. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of that comes from just, seeing how much is going on it can get overwhelming i yeah. mean it's already overwhelming enough sometimes trying to put these issues at a local level but you know i think with me personally especially you know i can't change the world by myself right but if i thought where i'm at here that, that can make a big difference in the long run yeah and if everyone does that where they're from that's that's a worldwide difference at that point so yeah uh, that's just the way i kind of look at it too in that respect yeah, and that's that's kind of one of the things I always say at the end of at the end of all my podcasts. I'm like, you know, conservation starts with you, right? Like it, it all starts with what you can do personally, even if it's you know, even if you're not two percent certified, right? Like if you're just if you're hunting public land or you're fishing public land, if while you're out on the river or you're out in the woods, you see trash, you pick it up. You know, I mean, the, those little things like that goes a long way and you never know who could be watching, whether it's your kids, whether it's, you know, another person out on the water and they see that. And maybe they're like, ah, you know what, maybe I should be doing that while I'm out here too. Like, it's just, sometimes it can have a real like trickle down effect. And, and those, you know, those results are, are something that it's, it's kind of hard to put your finger on, but you know, it, it's definitely felt and it's definitely, it shows up in, in that, you know, particular area or ecosystem. Right. Absolutely. Um, and you know, with me too, like going back to what I try to show my clients, like, you know, the Southeast United States, some summers get real hot. Mm-hmm. And you know, there comes a point where, you know, guiding for trout becomes almost unethical. Like, yeah, water gets too warm. Yeah, exactly. And the fish that you catch, like, they're, they're going to die, like, when you catch them. So what, I, what we do, too, in that respect is that we, we try to reschedule with people and, like, hey, let me take you out when it's going to be better anyway. Because yeah. you're not going to catch much, and we just, can't, we just can't go out there and just kill a bunch of fish. That's not what we're about. Yeah. But... Or, or, you know, try to go for something like smallmouth where, you know, they can handle those warmer water temperatures a little bit better and you're not going to have as much of a detrimental impact on the environment that way. Um, you know, doing things like that, too. And, and that goes back to, you know, just understanding your environment as yep. well. And that all starts again with just with just doing it. And then if someone watches you, you can learn from that example. That, that can go a long, long way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one more thing I wanted to, to touch on here before I let you go is you do some writing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, how did, did, when you were in college, did you study writing or is it just something that you decided to try your hand at? Because I mean, I've always had this, this deep appreciation for people who can write because on the outside, it's like, oh yeah, like anyone can write. Well, yes and, and no, right? I mean, because it, it takes a special person to be able to really translate what you know, what they're feeling or what they're thinking, get that on the paper and then get the person that's reading that to feel the same kind of way that you are, right? Like it, it, it's, 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 it's much tougher than, than I think a lot of people realize. So how did you kind of get, get into writing different articles and stuff like that? 
Um, that that started really for me. I mean, I've always had a kind of the same appreciation for writing as well. Um, I I never really liked it when I was in school, but I think that was partly because I got, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like you read a book you don't really really like and you have to write an essay about it. Yeah, uh, is one of those things I, I didn't like writing at that point, but I was always told I was naturally naturally good at it. And about I guess five years ago now, I got approached with. Um, an opportunity to start writing for a little startup local magazine called the well it, it's a national magazine called the angler but they have like different regions okay and um west north carolina east tennessee was just getting ready to like have a have like their own little startup thing for that region i got approached um and i still really don't know how they found me but um i got approached by the the organizers of that to start writing for them monthly um and that's grown since then exponentially um, but I, I write for them almost monthly now, a little short 500 word articles for the most part. But, um, I, I got to where I really enjoyed doing that because writing is just, you know, thoughts on paper. And, yeah. um, for me, writing has always been a good way to, you know, personally let some frustration out. But, you know, if I'm, if we're thinking about it from a, a conservation standpoint, you know, that, that magazine reaches a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm trying to, maybe educate a, a wide expanse of uh, expanse of people on let's say something about trout survival in the summertime like when is it too hot to fish for them or or something along those lines you know 500 words can can say a lot if you know how to write them yeah uh, and, and that can go a long way because you never know where that magazine is going to go because they they put that magazine in like you know fly shops and tackle shops but they also put them out in like restaurants around Asheville and hotels yeah. so you never know what kind of reach it's going to have. And, and that's one of the reasons why I like writing so much as well. And that's kind of how I got into it. Um, it was just by chance, you know, and, and then I kind of expanded on that and I saw it as a really good opportunity to again, give back in some way. Um, and you know, it's like you said, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. I'm not over here writing like the world's next great novel, (laughs) but uh, you know, 500 words, a little short spill on, you know, why it's important to protect forests, how it relates to trout, you know, there's a lot of people who don't understand those connections and, and trying to get that link across to people. Can, that can make a big difference in the long run. Yeah. And especially, you know, in this day and age where everything is kind of accessible at, at your fingertips with, with the internet and social media and stuff like that, you know, for someone who's maybe just getting into, to, to fly fishing, for example, you know, reading articles on, you know, when they should fish and, you know, when they should handle the fish and when they shouldn't and, and things like that. I mean, that, that goes a long way, right? I mean, otherwise, you know, a, a new angler, how are they going to know that, oh, it's, it's too hot to, to be out, you know, fishing trout because it's just, you know, puts too much pressure on them. So no, that's, I think that's something that's, that's really cool. And, and, and that's, I'm glad that you're doing something like that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Ethan, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, hop on the podcast today and tell us more about SAA and kind of your journey into, you know, being a guide and fishing like that. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was enjoyable, man. I really, uh, I had a good time. Hey, same here, brother. I appreciate you having me on. All right, man. You take care of yourself down there. All right. You do the same, buddy. All right. Thanks. Later, man. Right. Big thanks to Ethan for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, I'd like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure to check them out at stoneglacier.com. Also, like to thank our partners over at 2%. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear 
uh, your guiding services, coffee, books, real estate, uh, really anything that you need. You can probably find a 2% uh, certified company that uh, sells it. Uh, I encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be very um, positive, conservation-driven content coming out of their various uh, pages and feeds. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on their various social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for checking out this week's episode, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Stay safe out there, and remember that conservation starts with you.